I'm the child of two musicians, so I have no talent, so that's why I'm a librarian, but I do recognize music. And I knew about this young lady who was a classically trained flutist, but she's a big pop star, and I've been talking about this for a while when I knew her because the Library of Congress has the world's largest collection of a single instrument, the flute. So I said, boy, wouldn't it be good when I heard about this young lady if she could play? The young person on the team said, you know, she's coming for a concert in Washington. Why don't we, and I think the term is tag her, Twitter. Anyway, Lizzo and her mother and some of the people that work with her spent three hours in the music vault playing these different historic flutes, piccolo, all of that. That's when you know this is a musician that really knows the instrument to pick up something from 1750 and be able to say that. So our music curator was, okay, she's got chops. Since her appointment by former President Barack Obama in 2016, Dr. Carla Hayden has served as the Librarian of Congress, the world's largest library. She's the first African-American and first woman to hold the position, and the first person with a background as a public librarian in 70 years, having served as head of libraries in Baltimore and Chicago before taking on her current position. At a time when libraries around the world are getting a makeover, Dr. Hayden is leading a $60 million overhaul of the 125-year-old Thomas Jefferson Building, the library's oldest and main building. Her broader goal has been to make the Library of Congress more accessible to the public and more responsive to the country's other public libraries. In this interview, you will hear Dr. Hayden's passion for the many treasures the Library of Congress holds. After we were finished, she eagerly showed me a vault in the librarian's historic executive office, which was pried open in the 1950s, to reveal only one item inside. The contents of Abraham Lincoln's pockets on the night he was assassinated. Dr. Hayden hopes to put these and more priceless items on display once the Library of Congress makeover is complete. I'm Chris Termack, and I spoke to Carla Hayden on The Big Interview. Dr. Hayden, welcome to The Big Interview. Thank you very much. This is very exciting. And I wanted to start by, I guess, taking you back some ways to your time in Chicago, an interesting time where you sort of got your start. You also met the Obamas. You got to know them. Tell me a little bit about those formative years, me- meeting the Obamas, but also your, your work in Chicago and what that taught you going up to here. I attended a pretty progressive university in Chicago, Roosevelt University. In fact, it's Eleanor Roosevelt herself gave permission to use the name, and the Roosevelt family was part of the university for a number of years. In fact, one of the granddaughters is still involved, and their whole emphasis was on public service. So future mayor of Chicago attended there, this whole idea of public service. So I majored in history and political science, wasn't sure what I was going to do, though, after I graduated, and my dear mother suggested I look for employment while I was deciding law school or that. And in between interviews, I would go to my favorite place, the Chicago Public Library, the main library downtown. And one of the people who had just graduated with me 
saw me there and said, are you here for those library jobs? They're hiring anybody. Uh, and he meant anybody with an undergraduate degree. And libraries throughout this country still do that, hire people with undergraduate degrees to introduce them to the profession of librarianship. And I was hooked, and I was assigned with a young lady who was going to the graduate library school at University of Chicago. And then that was my pathway in. When I met, at the time, it was Michelle Robinson, who was working with the mayor of Chicago, Mayor Daly, Richard Daly. And part of her portfolio was the Chicago Public Library. And so by then, by that time, I was the chief librarian, first deputy you, commissioner. You worked your way up uh, well, through I the ranks. Well, I worked my way up and then away. <laughs> I went to uh, back to library school, got my PhD. I worked at the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. It, it, that's very interesting because it, they were establishing a public library in a museum. Actually, when I think about it, that gave me quite a bit of a background in terms of what I'm doing now as Librarian of Congress, because this institution is so much more than the books, its artifacts, its manuscripts, and things like that. However, Ms. Robinson, at that time, was in charge, basically, in the administration for certain agencies and institutions. The library was one, and so that's how I met her, and she was you could imagine, very effective, efficient, all of those things. And then she got engaged to a young man with an interesting name at the time, Barack Obama. And I was not able to attend the wedding that happened that summer because I had accepted a position at the Enoch Pratt Free Library in Baltimore. That's also the state library for Maryland. In the United States, they usually have state libraries in the capitals, but there are only three states, Maryland, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts, that have the main library, the biggest library in the state, perform the functions of a state library. So that's what made it very interesting for me, too. So I was representing the entire state, the delivery system, the computer systems, all of that for the state, but then also the city interesting also that years later, I was asked by then-President Obama to be a candidate for the position of Librarian of Congress. And it was, of course, such a historic nomination, first African-American, first woman. I also understand first librarian. In 70 years. In 70 years. Uh, exactly. The Library of Congress was established in 1802 with a small collection of legal books, actually, about 600 legal books, to serve Congress. And during the years, there have been poets, historians, all type, people with all types of backgrounds to be the librarian of Congress. And I'm the third with library experience. The first two were also public librarians. One ran the Boston Public Library and the other the Cleveland Public Library. And it's been 70 years since the librarian was the librarian. And how does that 
change your approach? How would you say your approach is different from your predecessors being a librarian? What did you bring with you from Chicago, Baltimore, and those experiences? I think it's the la latter part of what you said. What do I bring to it as a librarian in this time of change in libraries in general? So at different times in this institution's history, over 220 years, different people as librarian have brought different things. And I think at this point, I'm bringing the background in the library field as this library, the world's largest, except the British Library. We, we have a little friendly rivalry, but they're doing great things. And we visit and do a lot of exchange with the British Library. You should know that. We're part of a larger movement of moving into the digital realm. There are a lot of common issues with libraries, and there's also more of a feeling that the National Library, which is what the Library of Congress is, should be more involved in general with libraries and connecting in that too. So, mm. And what does that look like? I did, I did want to ask you about that because, as you say, we are in this sort of new age of libraries around the world, around, around the country, renovations of libraries. It also feels like they're becoming not just public-facing, but community spaces. You talked about digital. What kind of work are you doing as the Library of Congress to work with libraries around the country? Well, we're opening our digital front door to everyone. And our website is much more robust and includes programming. And we accelerated that during the pandemic. And we learned a lot. And we're going to continue with virtual programming. So, for instance, we have authors at the Library of Congress that we can stream out to other libraries. We have our own YouTube channel. And... We develop lesson plans, section called Teaching with Primary Resources. So taking the 61 million items that the library has digitized, and we digitize unique items, the papers of 23 presidents, the papers of historic figures, and also things like just today, a 54-foot petition from 1865 shortly after the Civil War ended, of Black South Carolinians asking Congress. There was a petition to take to Congress for the right to vote. So the names, there are 3,750 names on that petition, and it's one long roll. Those are people that aren't famous, like a Thomas Jefferson or some of the other papers that we have, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Madeleine Albright. However, they're just as important. And so we've digitized that document, and we're asking people to help us identify some of the names. So being more outward-facing, getting people involved with the collections. We have paid internships from, to have students come, college students come, and help us mine our own collections. So we've been doing a lot of that type of outreach as the National Library, and I'm very aware still of what the public libraries in this country are doing, too. They are, as you say, more than just a book dispenser, even though a lot of the books are being checked out electronically. 
they are opportunity centers, and they have been for a number of years. People, for instance, that's their main access to the internet. In some areas, we still don't have broadband in rural areas and even urban areas. So there are places that people can check out. There's one library I loved the title they had, Beyond Books. You could check out a sewing machine. You can check out musical instruments. You could check out traffic cones. That stumped me a little bit. <laughs> they said, well, what if you have repairs? So, you know, what if your child is learning to drive? But all of these things, and there are places where people get their flu shots, where they can register to vote. All of these things make libraries opportunity centers. And then to, to bring it back, I guess, to the Library of Congress, the flip side of that is when you talk about public facing, that you are really trying to open up the Library of Congress itself. So the digital, as you described, is the one way to do that. But then you are also trying to do it Physically. Physically. And that's really exciting today as we're in the Thomas Jefferson Building, the Palace of the People, Book Palace it was called when it opened in 1897. And yet still kind of opaque as a, Very, as a building. It's right behind the U.S. Capitol. It's a beautiful structure. However, most people will pass by and think it's just another government building. They're not sure. It's beautiful, but they're not sure what it is. And when people travel from the Capitol Visitor Center, there's a tunnel that leads you from the Capitol to the Library of Congress that was opened up in the 1990s. People come over and they look at this beautiful building that was modeled on an Italian palace and it's gorgeous, and they have no idea what it does. And the first question people always ask, where are the books? Because they can't see the stacks. They don't know unless they take a tour with a docent, and you have to book that in advance. How does this relate to me? They don't know that there are 61 million items that they can download, including Migrant Mother from Dorothea Lang and Teddy Roosevelt's diary, all of these things that are waiting for them, the Veterans History Project, all of these things that relate to them personally and could help them and inspire them. They walk away thinking, beautiful building, they've taken lots of photos, and they still don't have that connection. So what we're doing, and there are two other buildings, because over time, the library grew, to the point that they outgrew this building. They built in 1939 another building, the Adams Building, right behind it, outgrew that, and they had to build another building that opened in 1980. And there are now six storage modules in Fort Meade, Maryland, with three more to come. <laughs> so, that, you know, the physical collection It just keeps growing. growing. However, the Jefferson Building is the iconic building. That's the one that most people visit. And so we will have, within the next two to three years, a number of things to help people understand what the library is and what it can do for them. So for the first time, we'll have an actual welcome area and an orientation center. And that's where we're going to move the Thomas Jefferson Library down to that area to talk about the origins of the library when the British burned 
the books that were in the Capitol. When that happened in 1812, they used some of those books that were in the Capitol and the library. In fact, there's a fireplace that you can still see where they put the books in there. And yeah, we, we look at that sometimes. <laughs> but in 1814, Thomas Jefferson, who was by then retired and was in Monticello and everything, had the largest personal library in the United States, 6,000 volumes on every subject, because he said, there's no topic to which a member of Congress should not have occasion to refer. He had a Koran. He had different languages. He had books on horticulture, culinary arts, all of these things. And, and passed so it the, all on to the Library well, of Congress. Well, yeah. yeah. the government purchased his collection. And that's what started the idea of the Library of Congress being a universal collection on all types of subjects. So now you'll learn about that. And then you'll learn about in that orientation center, even if you only have a half hour to 45 minutes, we're going to open one of the stack areas. So you'll see one of the stack areas of our 836 miles of shelving. You'll see that. You'll get a real sense of what can happen. There'll be a interactive part where you'll mix your own sound recordings, because we have one of the largest sound recordings in the world. Photographs, you can mix your own things. A youth center for the young and the young at heart, where they can be history detectives. And then really for the first time, a treasures gallery that will rotate because we have so many treasures. There'll be some greatest hits, the Gutenberg Bible. Right. Okay. That there'll be certain things that you'll see and the contents of Abraham Lincoln's pockets the night he was assassinated. Those things are iconic. But there'll be other things that we can bring out depending on anniversaries or different things that are going on. So those three components are going to make the experience more meaningful for people when they come and hopefully get them excited. In addition to that, though, there is, of course, the central element of the library, the main reading room. Of this is, building. Of this building, Because the Library say. of Congress has 19 reading rooms. People might not realize that, but the original main reading room will be more accessible. And we're starting that right now, in fact, on having an hour where the general public can just go in and take pictures and walk around. The researchers are already aware that this will be the hour. And it really gets back to when this building first opened. They had a mezzanine part and they let, as they called them, visitors come in and people could walk in. And because it was such a, it was the first federal building to have electricity. So there was that part too. So just architecturally, it was notable. Here's this grand library in the nation's capital. So it was a tourist attraction then. And why is that important to you to allow people a little more access to the reading room in general for them to walk around? And how do you also balance that then? Surely it is a space that's sort of a private space right now for researchers. All of the reading rooms are for researchers. You can get a reader's card though at 16. So when you think about what's a researcher or a scholar, you, you can actually get a card and sit there and do your homework as a high schooler in that room. The room is to inspire you. And to see it now, you'll see at any given time, maybe about 20 people in there. 
the main reading room right now is for general reference, general books, manuscripts, for instance. I mentioned Teddy Roosevelt's diary. That's in the Madison building. That's where also where the music department is, and that's where some of the other things. The reading room is a place that you can bring your own materials and sit as well and ask for general reference tools. And you'll see about 20 people every day that are sitting there. Some will have their own laptops and they're doing it because the Wi-Fi and it's just an inspirational room. So we want people to be able to walk in there at floor level and also get a sense of that grandeur. When it comes to the architecture of it, you know, there has been some debate, some controversy just about the central area of the library and whether that should be removed or not. What do you make of well, that controversy? Well, what I make of it is, one, people's general reverence for a library. The quote-unquote controversy had to do with the design element of having that orientation center, which is going to be right under the main reading room, because that's that was a, a space that was back of house. There were no public there. It was pretty dingy with book carts and things. So that's going to be the new orientation center. And in the middle of what used to be a desk area where staff members would answer questions and do things, that had stopped in the 1990s <laughs> that you would actually have staff there that would answer a question. There is a cabinet there, and we were going to actually try to have a look up into that beautiful reading room from the orientation center so that people see it, yeah. Over time, the design to actually do that was very costly, and it wasn't going to be the beautiful thing that we thought. It shrunk after the designers and all that, so we said no. But in the meantime... The idea of it got conflated with you're tearing, you're doing something to the architecture, and it wasn't doing anything. It was a, a cabinet that books used to go up and down in. The original desk part from 1897 was going to be retained, so if you're in the reading room, you wouldn't even know. You, you would still see that beautiful part. However, I think it was a good opportunity, one, for people to realize we were going to do something. <laughs> you know, we were going to have an orientation center and a welcome area, get people riled up about what libraries are about. You know, we don't always get that kind of attention. And the Library of Congress, people, oh, oh the Library of Congress. So we got to talk about, yeah, you can sit in there at age 16, you can do this, you can do that. <laughs> Even so though was the plans have since been shelved, you're saying, essentially. For or, that or, element. For that element. But of, yeah. what is retained is there's a foyer that right now, if you walk out, you'll see people, they're big glass doors, and they can stand there and they press their faces up to try to see they can't look up and all that. We're going to be able to open that up. And there's going to be soundproofing so that they can walk into that foyer and stand there and look and can look up. We're able to still do that. We're working with, um, love the term, acuticians, acoustical experts on that. So they will, you won't disturb anybody 
and that. And then we'll have the free hours that we're doing now where people can come in. And today there was a line going, I was amazed at the line of people just to go in and see. So it's generated a little bit of buzz. Well, I did want to ask you, speaking of buzz as well, You've also kind of been a master at generating buzz, if I may say. You were also last year the focus for even just one moment when singer Lizzo, you tweeted Lizzo, invited her to see the flutes and play. And I'm very fortunate. And this is something that the British Library does as well. And we know Bibliothèque Nationale, we're kind of like the big three in terms of national libraries. Because the head of the British Library, you know, Roly Keating, uh, was at the BBC. And so we have a crackerjack team of communications and media, young people, most of them are young, and a social media crew. So I have ideas, and they can make it happen. Did you have the idea for this one? When I found out, I'm the child of two musicians, so I have no talent, so that's why I'm a librarian, but I do recognize music. And I knew about this young lady who was a classically trained flutist, but she's a big pop star. And I've been talking about this for a while when when I knew her because the Library of Congress has the world's largest collection of a single instrument, the flute. Nobody knows it. Now we're going to put in the Treasures Gallery, several of the flutes and rotate them. We have Stradivarius violins, but who knew? that have to be played, the the violins. So we have the music school, and Joshua Bell, the violinist, has played them, so they have to be played. So I I said, boy, wouldn't it be good when I heard about this young lady if she could play? young person on the team said, you know, she's coming for a concert in Washington. Why don't we, and I think the term is tag her, Twitter, because I do, like, different things. I'll take pictures, me and my mom, and we'll tweet and different things. So it's kind of fun. You know, I'm the content person. But anyway, so we did. We invited her, and she responded, and then she She responded, and she came, and it created what was so interesting, the flurry was more about her playing the crystal flute, James Madison's flute, that he never played. It was a gift from France, actually. And Dolly Madison, when they had that, they had to run from the British again. Anyway, Lizzo and her mother and some of the people that work with her spent three hours in the music vault playing these different historic flutes, piccolo, all of that. And our music curator was so impressed with her that she knew that if, she took that particular flute to the concert that she would one handle it responsibly. But to see her spend three hours playing these different historic flutes and adjusting the fingering, that's when you know this is a musician that really knows the instrument. To pick up something from 1750 and be able to say that. So our music curator was, okay, she's got chops. What was interesting about the moment was what she said on stage, but also how it has been portrayed since. Just this idea of making history, history and the library fun. cool. It's cool, <laughs> and it is cool. What was that moment like for you? It was the culmination of a lot of the ideas I've had about opening up the ultimate treasure chest, is the Library of Congress. We have 
so many things. When you see one of my favorites, Jonathan Larson's calculation for seasons of love in his own handwriting on notepaper. It's wonderful. Carl Sagan at 12, we have his papers and his drawing of what a space traveler would look like at 12. Here it is on notepaper, a lot of notepaper, <laughs> people writing it. So to have, think of the inspiration that that would be. And I saw it firsthand with the Leonard Bernstein anniversary of his you know, 100th year. And we had kids from Baltimore, where I still live, that are connected with the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. They have a program called Ork Kids. And they came over and would show them different things. And then they would perform at the Library of Congress their own compositions. But so the first one was with Leonard Bernstein in that collection. And the thing that they loved the most was his report cards because he got C's and D's. It's and for inspiring. Them, it was inspiring. <laughs> it's like, okay, they bust us over here. This is this famous man, and he got C's and D's. See? It's, so that's what really it's about, having people that young people can relate to, saying history is cool, letting them know that the people that are famous got C's and D's too. Their cross-outs on famous songs on paper. Just final question then. Your title is Chief Librarian, but what? how would you describe your role in a, in a few words? You are kind of a mix of everything. Historian, librarian, educator, cultural figure. You just did it. <laughs> <laughs> you just did it. Which of those is most important to you? If I had to pick what a librarian, because that's the official title, Librarian of Congress, what a librarian is, someone that helps people with their needs, their information needs. And that information could be, what's a good book? Or my young person doesn't want to read, and you give them a graphic novel. So that's what I think I'm doing, is providing opportunities for people to get engaged, get inspired, entertained, all of that. Dr. Hayden, thank you very much for joining thank us. Thank you. That's it for this week's edition of The Big Interview. It was produced by myself and Emma Searle and edited by Jack Jewers. From me, Chris Chermack, thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.